Coming up today, how Apple might eat the newsletter industry and why quantum computing could unravel some of the mysteries of the universe. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Amit Katwala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when England extended its coronavirus restrictions for four more weeks. Remaining restrictions on social contact were due to be lifted on June 21st, but this has been delayed as the Delta variant continues to cause concern, allowing more people to get vaccinated in the meantime. This was also the week when dozens of new video games were announced at E3, which took place virtually because of the pandemic. Things were a little subdued, but there was confirmation of a new Zelda Breath of the Wild coming out in 2022, plus next-gen games based on Guardians of the Galaxy and Avatar. And finally, it was the week when Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the World Wide Web, announced that he would sell off the original code he created as an NFT. It will be auctioned by Sotheby's, with uh, Berners-Lee saying that money will be given away to causes uh, he and his wife are going to pick. What do you guys make of the whole NFT thing? I have to say, and this makes me sound a million years old, I don't really get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of lean towards that as well. I mean, it, it, it kind of makes me wonder why these kind of completely arbitrary things have value. But then you could say that about a lot of physical things as well, that we as a society have decided have value, such as diamonds or gold or whatever. So maybe it's no really, not really much different to that. And it's just in a new medium. The Tim Berners-Lee thing sort of puzzled me a little bit as well, just because like he never sort of like obviously patented any of the original sort of uh, source code and the creation that he d- that he did for the web, but then now is selling it off or something. But I guess if he's giving the money to charity and things like that, um, then that's uh, it could could be for good causes. Yeah, and I suppose ultimately it is effectively just like a trinket, really. You know, like a I own the one token of the source code, right? It doesn't really have any impact on the web. No, not at all. But I guess it would be a pretty cool thing to earn, but probably uh, to own, sorry, but probably I will never, uh, never be able to buy it. <laughs> Interesting facts this week. Amit, you've been ordering a lot of takeaway through lockdown, apparently. I have, yeah. So I learnt today that ordering a takeaway through an app uh, is on average 23% more expensive than ordering directly from the restaurant. So obviously, as you say, a keen takeaway enthusiast, I was aware that there was some markup. You often see menu prices with a pound added to every item, for instance. But I didn't realise quite how much it varied between apps. So delivery was 31% more expensive. Uber Eats, 25% more expensive. Just Eat, 7% more expensive. That's all according to research from the consumer group, Which. That is quite remarkable. Will that change your takeaway habits? Because you're kind of paying for convenience, right? I think that's the thing. I think you kind of go into it with your eyes open and you pay for the convenience of having someone drive it to you through an interface that you understand. And uh, I mean, it's kind of awful, really, but but that's what you pay for with the apps, isn't it? And I've kind of made my peace with it. (laughs) Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Um, This week, I learned that the groundskeepers and and when they're uh, mowing um, the the pitch at at football stadiums such as Wembley can travel up to 10 miles each time that they cut a pitch just going backwards and forwards uh, multiple times to make sure that the grass is uh, cut to the right level. 
Wow. If I knew the length of a football pitch, I guess we could do the maths and, and make that make sense. But I don't. So I'm going to take your word for it. I also don't know the length of a football pitch. I was, I'm, I was thinking you were going to ask me that as soon as uh, <laughs> as soon as uh, I mentioned this fact. But I think it's a hundred and something meters, maybe something like that. A couple of hundred meters, hundred. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it depends on the width of your mower as well. I learned a fact this week, which I'm 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 maybe a little bit embarrassed to bring on because it feels like it could be something that everyone else knows, and perhaps I've just got forgotten my basic high school chemistry. But it kind of blew my mind because um, I either didn't know it or had forgotten it, and that's the the pH scale, which measures you know how acidic or alkaline something is, is logarithmic. So that means that every time you go up or down a number on the scale, the concentration of hydrogen ions, which affects the acidity or alkalinity, changes by a factor of 10. So if you remember, low pHs are acidic. pH 3 is 10 times more acidic than pH 4. And pH 2 is 100 times more acidic than pH 4 because it's logarithmic. Did you guys know that? I did not know that. No, that's... um... Logarithmic scales is one of those things that you kind of understand in principle, but it really makes it really, really difficult to get your head around. It's the same with the Richter scale, right? For um, earthquakes, that's logarithmic as well, isn't it? I do not know, but blow my mind again. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I hope I explained that correctly. If there's any chemists listening, maybe you can uh, add a bit more nuance. But there you go. Now, for our first main story this week, we're looking at the newsletter industry and how Apple may be about to change it forever. The last few years have seen the newsletter industry riding high as the format has made something of a resurgence. Matt, what's been going on? Yeah, so at the start of the pandemic, um, this time a little bit, well, slightly more than a year ago now, uh, newsletters were booming. Last April, the number of readers and active writers on uh, newsletter platform Substack had doubled and other providers such as MailChimp had seen similar spikes in users. Uh, And since then, uh, newsletter platforms have remained popular and continued to grow in many cases, um, and they've been attracting big names. So with the traditional media industry cutting budgets and making mass layoffs, individual writers have been turning to newsletters to, in effect, become brand themselves and market themselves that way Um, and over this time um, the platforms have continued to grow and get more users and bigger names and it's now more than possible for for certain people to be able to make a living off of writing and and, uh, marketing themselves via newsletters so big name journalists have been signing six-figure deals with email subscription platforms such as Substack as I mentioned and uh, the most recently, we, recently we saw former UK government advisor Dominic Cummings joining the platform and um, and sharing a lot of text messages and uh, things between him and the Prime Minister on his own uh, on his own email newsletter. Um, and at the same time, publishers, including Wired, have uh, invested in newsletters that bring the best of some of our content directly to audiences, rather than expecting them to sort of proactively uh, visit websites uh, just to just to access stuff. Um, and before I go any further, a question for both of you. Do you have any favourite newsletters you subscribe to or anything niche or anything a bit uh, unexpected at all? Well, naturally, the Wired newsletters, which are all brilliant. <laughs> you know what? I do I do subscribe to a few. Most of them are sort of like daily tech newsletters and things like that or from tech analysts who I sort of respect their opinion. But I have to admit that I do quite often delete them without opening them. You know, when you've got an inbox full of emails and you've got some newsletters in there and it's a busy day and you're just like, there's no way I'm going to get to that today. And you just kind of hit the delete button so i do do that quite a lot 
Yeah, I mean, basically, I was basically going to say the exact same thing. Like, I subscribe to a bunch of culture, tech, news websites, and newsletters, some football ones as well from some of the sites that I subscribe to. Um, the, the, the sites that I pay for subscriptions for, I often have newsletter subscriptions to just to make sure that content gets put in front of me. But I reckon that I probably only read about 5% of the 20 or 30 newsletters that arrive in my inbox every day just because it comes in, as you say, with the same stream as your email and you just want to get it off your plate almost and archive it or delete it so yeah it's interesting i wonder how many of the subscribers actually read the newsletters as they come through there's quite a range of quality and you know some things you might just sign up to because they're free and then it ends up feeling like a bit of a chore and then other things maybe you'll pay to sign up for and you're you're perhaps more inclined to open them then it's it's such a broad landscape in the same way as publishing in general i suppose yeah, definitely. I think that there's been sort of like a rise in a lot of niche newsletters and things that are like sort of hyper uh, uh, spe- specific around certain topics. And, and that's where we've seen some of the growth. But there's also the bigger, bigger platforms and, and things where uh, you've got names attached to them that, and you're signing up for their specific takes or expertise. Um, and the real point of this is that newsletters are now a big business and more so than they've ever been. And successful ones can make a lot of money. Uh, so one uh, newsletter called Not Boring, which is a newsletter about finance and tech, for for instance, charges uh, $2,000 to advertisers to reach 14,000 subscribers. And around half of those open emails that have been sent to them. Um, but obviously, newsletters aren't just for the media. They're a key way for companies and brands to promote their products to loyal subscribers and customers. And they're effective marketing tool and advertising tool. But this email boom could actually be about to end. So what Matt's talking about here is Apple, kind of, which might be a bit, seem a bit incongruous, but Apple had its worldwide developer conference this month and announced a new initiative called Mail Privacy Protection, which is essentially a shift by Apple in the way it handles emails and tracking pixels hidden within them. You might have seen an Apple advert that's been running on TV where someone kind of taps uh, their phone and all these kind of people hassling them with, you know, job adverts or uh, requests to buy something kind of disappear in puffs of smoke. This is what Apple's really pushing. But what's actually changing, Matt? Yeah, so one of the big things that Apple announced at WWDC around privacy was uh, the it's essentially it is going to block pixels in emails, which are tracking pixels. Uh, and this move stops senders from using invisible pixels uh, within emails to collect information about users. It's a relatively sort of like uh, shady move, the use of pixels that has become standard practice in a lot of email marketing and also just email publishing in general. So these pixels, if, if, if you're not sure what they are, they are essentially just yeah small uh, actual actual literal pixels in an email uh, which newsletters uh, use to see how many people open the emails how often they open them and at what time they open them and this helps them collect data on sort of user behavior and understanding how somebody who is receiving an email uh, how they're interacting with it if they're opening it at all so the pixels can also record what sort of device you're using so if you're using an iphone 5s for instance it will be able to record that and also your rough physical location when you open the email or interact with it that's based around sort of your ip address Um, um, and some tracking pixels actually go a bit further than that. They can include, uh, they can, some of them can uh, monitor users' online activity and interests based on the type of links that they click on. Uh, and they can also help to build user profiles and determine the impact of an email campaign. And Apple, uh, when it was announcing these changes, uh, justified banning the pixel by saying it wasn't aiming to, well, it is aiming to protect users against the most invasive tracking practices. 
I'm going to say this doesn't sound like a bad thing, at least for users. It is definitely a good move for people's privacy, um, but where it could have a huge influence comes into play when you consider how much control Apple has over the email market in general. And while it might not may not provide an email service that's as popular as uh, Google Gmail for actually uh, sending emails and receiving emails, it does control the infrastructure behind how many people access their email overall. So when you get a new iPhone or an iPad or even on a Mac, uh, there's a, there's a good chance that you'll be using the Apple Mail app to access uh, other email providers and, and your messages from them. So there's one stat that actually says that more than 60% of all email accounts that are opened in a piece of software is in software that's controlled by Apple. So essentially, it's got a big uh, control over uh, the overall infrastructure and uh, its move to ban these pixels could make a big difference. And the worry among newsletter publishers is that Apple's changes uh, by removing the tracking pixels could stop one of the major benchmarks upon which newsletter advertising is sold, which is how often emails are opened. And experts say the beauty of email is that it's a tool that provides creators a near immediate feedback loop and blocking pixels takes this away. Uh, and they say that it makes it trickier to gauge what content resonates with subscribers through their emails. One of the things with these tracking pixels is that most people don't actually know that they're there. They don't have much or any of an idea that the emails they open are tracking them or in what way they might be doing that. Aren't there other potential ways for email apps to learn about their readers without tracking them in these kind of secretive, murky ways? Um, so take Packy McCormick. He's the founder of Not Boring. He surveyed his readers to learn more about them. That sounds like a simple alternative. Yeah, that is definitely one way to be able to do this. And some people essentially argue that knowing how many people opened your email isn't actually even that useful uh, because uh, overall they say that uh, it's not that different to knowing how many people are subscribed to it in the first place. And they say that showing how many people clicked on previous ads is a better metric than gathering sort of super granular details about them. So the creator of Hey, um, which uh, is an email client that stopped uh, allowing pixels long before sort of Apple made its move into this space um, said that you can get analytics in other ways uh, such as tracking uh, the amount of ads that are clicked um, and you can then also sort of like publish the rates of the success for these came campaigns so once you know uh, how often an ad is clicked you can use that to sell um, future advertising in in the newsletters um, and they the creators of hey also say that it's they sort of compare it to um, a news a newspaper. So advertisers that take out um, uh, adverts within newspapers, um, they might know what page it's going on, and if it's closer to the front of a um, if it's closer to the front of a paper, it might be seen a little bit more. Um, but they don't really know if that page was opened by their reader at all. But they still take out advertising because it, it gets in front of people and it can work. Um, and generally, sort of measures such as subscriber numbers. They are quite difficult to understand, which is where some of the sort of the controversy in this comes around. So if you've got a super popular newsletter, um, it might keep growing lots of subscribers, might grow a few thousand subscribers a week or, or something, for instance. But you don't necessarily, without being able to track people that are opening them, as we mentioned earlier, um, you might not be able to know who, how many people have opened that. And essentially, you could be getting more and more popular, but not as many people or a lower percentage 
are opening your newsletter. So that's where the sort of like controversy from the sort of like advertising and the marketing side of things come in. Um, so traditionally, newsletter providers would look at their subscriber lists and uh, take people off these lists if they're not opening their emails regularly. Uh, but when these pixels, uh, when this pixel tracking uh, blocking comes in, into place from Apple, uh, the ability to track open rates won't be possible. So they, they argue that this measure will will be taken away from them. So that's how it's going to impact the newsletter senders and providers. What What's Apple's play here? We've talked on the podcast a bit about how the company has become more privacy focused and it's using privacy as a selling point with some of the recent changes it's made to iOS and that's resulted in Facebook and other apps not being able to track you as easily. Is this just about that or is there some other forces at play here as well? Does Apple have an ulterior motive? That's what's quite difficult to gauge at the second. It is definitely very true that Apple is uh, using uh, privacy as a competitive advantage. Um, and some of the email experts we spoke to say that Apple's move may directly harm the industry because they won't be able to track things as easily. And they also speculate that in the future, Apple could look to launch its own newsletter subscription service. Uh, they said they could uh, provide, Apple could provide data in a more sort of privacy friendly manner than uh, is available through tracking pixels. And there could be a money there could be money for Apple essentially in creating uh, a platform where people can send and, and use email through on on a mass scale. I like personally, I don't necessarily think that is super likely that Apple will move into that space, but um, couldn't rule anything out at this stage. Um, and others reckon that it's important for regulators and privacy activists to keep an eye on Apple for the moves that it's making uh, around this, because uh, even though Apple's uh, blocking of tracking through iOS and apps that can track you across different apps for advertising purposes. Um, it has been sort of lauded as something that has been a very good move for people and has definitely limited Facebook's ability to track people across the digital ecosystem. Um, because Apple has the control of this infrastructure around mail and email, there is an argument to say that it could uh, essentially really change the industry and lots of the industry very quickly uh, and not have a lot of scrutiny or transparency around how it's done so and sort of uh, if it's doing so is in its own interests or if it's actually in the interest of greater competition and other things. So I think that there's definitely um, some privacy-focused thoughts from Apple on this and, and a lot of that could be very good for users but uh, the impacts on sort of industries and marketing and, and email subscribers and stuff is still something that's very much uh, to be seen over the next uh, next few months and years when this rolls out. Let us know what you think about all of this. Do you subscribe to any newsletters? Do you enjoy getting your news or analysis that way? And what do you make of tracking pixels? If you've subscribed to a newsletter, are you happy for them to track what you're doing with those emails or would you rather keep that private? What do you think the alternatives are? Is this a good move? Is it a bad move? We want to hear your views at podcast at wired.co.uk. Now moving on to our second story of this week. Uh, want, to, want to get your brain in gear for, I think, quantum computing. Amit, you're, you're actually always really good at explaining this topic, so I don't want anyone to be put off because you don't need to understand it. Amit will take us through what quantum computing is. <laughs> now, quantum computers could take decades to scale, but they're actually already having an impact. And if you want to learn more about it, you can order the latest book in the Wired Guide series, Quantum Computing, How It Works and Why It Could Change the World, by our very own Amit Katwala. But first of all, Amit, remind us, what actually is a quantum computer? 
Thanks, Lovick. I'm going to have to explain it really, really clearly now, otherwise <laughs> you put me under a bit of pressure. But essentially, quantum computing is a new form of computing built on the properties of quantum mechanics, which are the rules that apply at a really, really small scale. So instead of a normal computer, which uses bits that can only be one or zero, quantum computers use qubits, which can be one or zero or something in between. So this gives quantum computers the ability to take on calculations that would be beyond even the best supercomputers for certain kinds of tasks. They take advantage of the inbuilt uncertainty of the universe, which means that they should be really good at simulating things that have uncertainty built into them by nature. So things like chemical reactions or biological processes, quantum computers should be much better at processing these because they have uncertainty built into the way they work. So this ability to consider things that contain uncertainty, things that aren't just one or zero, what kind of problems could that help quantum computers tackle? You talk about a few of them in the book. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, so we've published an extract from the book on wired.co.uk, which looks at some of these problems. They could be really, really useful, as I said, for simulating chemical and physical reactions. One area that scientists are really excited about is the potential for energy storage and climate change. So if you look at the lithium-ion battery, for instance, which was first commercialised in the early 1990s, it's transformed technology with the ability to store energy in small amount of space. Without lithium, you know, there wouldn't be an iPhone, wouldn't be Tesla, your laptop would be a lot bigger and heavier. It would still be using one of those acid-based batteries that you used to get in, you know, toys back in the day. Um, but the world is running out of lithium. It's really hard to get. It's getting more expensive and it's got an environmental cost associated with extracting it as well. So that could prove to be a really big bottleneck in the development of electric vehicles. So scientists are engaged in this kind of frantic race to find replacements for lithium and quantum computers could really, really help them in this quest. It's the same in agriculture where 5% of the world's consumption of natural gas is used in the Haber-Bosch process, which is a method of turning nitrogen into ammonia-based fertiliser for crops. Again, this is really, really important. It sustains about 40% of the world's population but it's incredibly inefficient compared to nature's own methods, which we don't really fully understand. And again, this is another area where it's hoped that quantum computers could provide something of an answer. The general pattern is that right now, scientists are limited by our current technology. They're limited by the, even the best supercomputers can only look at very small problems, or they have to do this kind of trade-off between accuracy and speed. You can simulate something like a chemical reaction, either very, very slowly using a lot of computing power, or you can take shortcuts and simulate it less accurately using less computing power. So, for instance, if you look at a hydrogen atom, uh, just, just to give an example of how this scales up, so a hydrogen atom has one positively charged proton and one electron. You can work out the chemistry of a hydrogen atom by hand or on a laptop. Helium has two protons with two negatively charged electrons. It's more challenging to simulate because the, the, the state of one electron depends on the state of the other. But as, as it gets up, it's a bit like what you were saying, Vicky, about pH being uh, on a logarithmic scale earlier, right? It's as it scales up, so by the time you get to thulium, which has 69 orbiting electrons, you're so far beyond the capability of classical computers. If you tried to write down one of each of the possible states of thulium per second, it would take 20 trillion years, which is more than a thousand times the age of the universe. To simulate thulium on a classical computer you would need to buy up intel's entire worldwide production of chips for the next one and a half million years so these are the kind of problems that you get when you try and simulate chemistry and nature that supercomputers are running into these barriers and it's hopeful that quantum computers will allow us to overcome these barriers 
So we've got all of these really big problems that uh, we think we could potentially find answers to and solutions to if we have enough sort of computing power essentially to be able to to do this. Um, but at the moment, as you sort of said there, Amit, the sort of like we just don't have the scale uh, of uh, either the chips or, or the power needed to be able to uh, do a lot of these uh, calculations. So how can quantum computers actually help with this? So there are a few different ways. So the first approach is basically involves building a specific computer to model the problem you're trying to solve. So if you were trying to recreate Thelium, for example, you'd physically recreate the model with 69 qubits corresponding to its 69 um, electrons. And each of those electrons could be in a state of zero or one or somewhere in between. And that would give you the capability of modeling that molecule without having to rely on thousands or tens of thousands or trillions of bits. Um, So that's one way of doing it. Uh, that that kind of machine would be easier to build, but it wouldn't necessarily be a computer in the traditional sense because you wouldn't be able to easily reprogram it to tackle different problems. It would be very, very good at solving one specific problem, but if you wanted to look at a different molecule, you'd have to build an entirely different machine. So that's not really a practical approach. The second approach involves implementing algorithms that show how a system changes over time. This is a little bit complicated and it's probably not the best place to get into it, but there is a fuller explanation in the book. But these are essentially called Hamiltonian simulations. So you input the current state of the system in the form of what's called a wave function and you watch how the level of energy in the system plays out over time. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but again, there's not really it doesn't, the math behind it doesn't really matter. But what does matter that is that these Hamiltonian simulations could be used to improve our understanding of photosynthesis. They could be used to make better solar panels. Uh, in 2017, a research team from Microsoft and ETH Zurich demonstrated that a quantum computer with 100 qubits could uncover the mysteries of nitrogen fixation in plants, which is what the Haber-Bosch process is currently used to make fertilizer for. If we understood that process better, we would be able to make uh, make farming much more efficient and, and kind of feed the world much more efficiently without such a big carbon footprint, such a big energy footprint. But the problem is that for 100 logical qubits, which is what you would need to do this calculation, you'd actually need a million physical qubits to form those 100 logical qubits because of things like errors and the redundancy that you need in computing systems. So we're still a long way from being able to do that. So there's still a lot to be done to scale up quantum computing to be able to tackle some of these biggest problems, as well as sort of characterising some of the the physical materials in the world around us at the moment, some of the, the chemicals and their properties could quantum computers also help to discover whole new things whole new materials yeah so there's a really interesting area of work um that's being led by a company called zapata computing they're working on a method of finding new materials that uses generative modeling so it it, there's kind of a parallel here with machine learning and ai so if you give a, a, a machine learning or an ai model a small amount of data it can extrapolate from that and figure out okay, well, here's what other things in this space would look like. You can feed it with 100 faces and it can generate a 1,000 plausible-looking faces based on that initial input. And it's a similar process here. So they can, if you feed the library with kind of different existing molecules that you know exist and can exist in the real world, then it can extrapolate and identify new compounds. And that's one of the reasons that the medical industry is so excited about quantum computing. They think it could be really, really helpful for drug discovery by enabling companies to quickly identify new compounds and also to simulate their effects without actually having to physically make the compound. It could help them model complex interactions and processes in the body. It could help discover new treatments for Alzheimer's or a quicker understanding of new diseases like COVID-19. So this really ties into the, the AI work that's being done by companies like DeepMind, which 
is trying to use AI to gain an insight into protein folding, quantum computers can really accelerate this effort in the healthcare space. There's definitely a lot of uh, potential for quantum computers, but the big sort of like elephant in the room is that they are super difficult to build. Um, and there's been sort of like a lot of uh, back and forth from some companies around um, how how they how their own systems work um and how long will we have to wait before we have an actually useful practical uh form of quantum computer yeah so right now we're in this area that's called the nisc era which stands for near intermediate scale quantum computing so this is a kind of era where we have quantum computers but they're not actually that useful so the, some of the problems that i talked about as i said will need like a million qubits to to for us to actually work on them the best quantum computers today have about 70 or 80 qubits so that's the kind of scale up that we've got to do. So in 2019, Google claimed quantum supremacy, which was the first time that a quantum computer had outperformed a traditional computer. But to do that, they had to basically invent a whole new field of technology and spend hundreds and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of pounds. Because as you say, Matt, building qubits is really, really difficult because they're so um, finicky, basically. So when I talk about qubits, I use this example of a coin. So if a normal bit is a coin and you can, it can either be heads or tails, then a qubit is essentially a spinning coin. So if you take the coin and you spin it like a top. But then if you think about a spinning top, anything can nudge out of its pattern, right? Anything can knock it over. A gust of wind could knock it over and qubits are the same. So they have to use all these layers of technology to keep them stable. So in Google's case, with superconducting qubits, that was all these these huge distillation fridges that look like giant chandeliers hanging from the ceiling which cool this chip down to colder than outer space to stop the qubits from being interfered with and that kind of works if you've only got 60 or 70 qubits like google's chip but if you need thousands or millions of qubits then you would need a fridge the size of a football stadium or a football pitch um not that we know what size a football pitch is but like you'd you'd, um it just wouldn't work right it doesn't scale so we either need to find a new way of doing it, which lots of companies are working on, or we need to wait, you know, years or decades. So we could be a long, long way from being able to run the Hamiltonian simulations that I talked about on an actual quantum computer. But even though we don't have the hardware yet, and it might be quite a while until we get there, some companies are already racing ahead with quantum algorithms. So the sort of software side of things, right? Yeah, exactly. So quantum computers, even though they don't exist, people are writing software for them, writing algorithms for them. And there's an intermediate stage, which we they call variational quantum algorithms, which is which is one of the ways that quantum computers can simulate nature. And it's likely to be the most useful in the short and medium term. What this does is it basically uses a hybrid of quantum and classical computers to speed up calculations. So um, Peter Johnson, who is from Zapata, the company I talked about earlier, use it as a comparison with Google Maps. So Google Maps, when you ask it to find you the route home, it doesn't search through all possible routes in the world every single time because that would take up unnecessary amounts of processing ability. Instead, it it uses shortcuts. It uses a subset of routes and partial routes. So if you were going from London to Leeds, it would know that most of those routes would involve the M1. So it would take a shortcut and rule out all routes that don't involve the M1 motor, which runs from you know London northwards. Um, rather than going in completely blind, Google's mapping algorithm uses shortcuts and rule of thumb to limit the size of the database that it has to search through. It's the same if you were looking for a particular house number on an unfamiliar street, you know that odd and even numbers are on different sides of the road, so that you, you know that if the house number you're looking for is even, you only have to look on one side of the road. So it's that kind of thing. So rather than trying to do an entire calculation using a quantum computer, these variational quantum algorithms use a limited number of qubits that we have access to now 
to make a best guess at the solution with the resources available. And then they hand the result over to a classical computer, which then decides whether or not to have a go, another go. So you can split this quantum processing over smaller independent steps, which means you can run calculations with fewer qubits than you would normally need. And there was an example of this in January 2020. Um, researchers at IBM worked with the German car manufacturer Daimler to use a small-scale quantum computer to simulate three molecules containing lithium, which could be used in the next generation of batteries. So they used this variational quantum algorithm, and it's already being used to kind of help accelerate the development of batteries, even though we're a long way from having these kind of full-scale quantum computers. So, yeah, as you, as you alluded to there, if some of this work is already happening now, what, what does it really mean in the short term? And when will we start to see the benefits of, of quantum? Yeah, so it's kind of a weird thing. So supercomputer, people think of quantum computing, or sometimes people think of quantum computing as something that's going to change the way that the devices that we actually use every day look and feel and work. And that's not the case. They're going to be much more like supercomputers, which are obviously available and the the fruits of the labour of supercomputers are available to us, but most people will never come anywhere near a supercomputer. They're often, you know, research labs, and if you access them, it will be by the cloud, or, you know, they might be used to write a programme that you then use later on or do processing that then benefits you in some other way. And it's going to be similar with quantum computers. You know, you'll never use one or see one. You won't have a quantum chip in your phone. But what will happen is that companies will build them and then they'll open up access to them via the cloud to clients. Or very much more likely is that a company will go to something like IBM or Microsoft with a problem and then IBM or Microsoft or Google or whoever is built with quantum computer will decide whether to use their supercomputer for that problem or to use their quantum computer for that problem, depending on the nature of the problem and, you know, what they need to solve. Um, but we're already seeing these companies kind of launch these networks, these platforms where you ca can access quantum resources already. So researchers in certain fields have access to small scale quantum computing. So we could actually start to see some of the early benefits in the next few years. And then eventually, the hope is that quantum computers, as I said, will be able to tackle some of these existential crises that are facing our planet. If you look at climate change, for example, it relies on understanding energy systems, climate systems, weather systems, all things that are really, really difficult for traditional computers to simulate could be much, much easier for quantum computers to simulate. And actually, the biggest area where quantum computers might have an impact is in quantum physics itself. So if you look at the Large Hadron Collider, for example, the particle accelerator that collects about 300 gigabytes of data a second as it smashes protons together to unlock the secrets of the universe. Analyzing all that data requires a huge amount of computing power, and scientists at CERN, which is where the Large Hadron Collider is based, hope that quantum computers could help speed up that analysis of data because it would enable them to run more accurate simulations before they conduct real-world tests. Um, so they're already developing algorithms and models that will help them harness the power of quantum computers when the devices get good enough to actually help. And, you know, for all the stuff we've talked about for energy and climate and all these things, some people actually argue that this is what could be the most fundamental and profound application of quantum computers. Physicists have been working on trying to come up with a unified theory of everything ever since they really first discovered the properties of quantum mechanics back in the 1910s and 1920s that incorporates both quantum theory, that of, you know, the quantum theory of what happens at a really small scale with the kind of Newtonian physics of gravity and momentum and things like that that happen at a slightly larger scale. So they think, or uh, John Gribbon, who wrote about this, thinks that 
you know, if we're going to unlock the secrets of the universe and come up with a unified theory of everything, and then quantum computers are the kind of only way that we're going to be able to do that. If you're interested in what you've just heard about, then do consider ordering the latest Wired book, Quantum Computing, How It Works and Why It Could Change the World. It's a thorough and accessible overview of everything you need to know about quantum computing and how it could change our future. We've got some feedback from you from previous episodes. Uh, First up, Amit M from Barcelona wrote in. Yeah, thanks, Vicky. So she's been listening to the podcast for a year now during weekly trips to their nephews from Barcelona to a little town called Seva, which the trip is conveniently about the same length as a podcast. They love the show and they love all of us in it, which is really, really nice to hear. Thank you so much. Uh, They say we're so close and friendly that it feels like we know they know us all. And they even subscribed to the magazine uh, and were genuinely excited to see us announced in it, like seeing one of their friends in the newspaper. That's really lovely to hear. Thank you so much. And I would recommend the magazine if you'd like to see a a lovely full scale drawing of all of our faces, which uh, shocks me whenever I turn the page and see it. Um, Em's writing in about the episode we did on the vowelless rebranding of companies. This was sparked by uh, Aberdeen changing its name to ABRDN, the, the company, right from a few weeks ago. She points to two sketches, one by Fry and Laurie called Your Name, Sir, and one by the, the two Ronnies called I've Got a Problem with My Apple. And she's included YouTube links, but if you want to look them up, uh, she totally recommends them and definitely worth watching again for a good laugh. Thanks so much for writing in, M. Yeah, we haven't rebranded to Word yet, have we? Maybe save that one for the, for, for the future. Uh, Matt, Rebecca writes in. Yeah, so Rebecca wrote in about the story we talked around last week around ditching Google Chrome. And Rebecca wasn't the only person to write in around this, but uh, we're going to include some of those other emails in future um, podcasts. Uh, and Rebecca says in the discussion, you talked about two different business models that tech, tech companies have, such as uh, using a service for free and giving up a lot of personal information or paying uh, and subscribing to a service. And they pointed out that there are obviously uh, different types of other business models as well. They pointed to uh, Mozilla, which and runs Firefox, which is a non-profit uh, company, uh, and it, uh, I mean, it has different, various different storm, uh, streams of uh, resource funding and, and where it gets its money from, uh, including, I think, Google in some cases when it's uh, when Google is being used within uh, Firefox. But essentially, the point is that it ha- that it's something that is run as a not-for-profit. And there's also the Wikipedia model, which uh, is uh, Rebecca points out, which is obviously sort of more crowdfunded user donations. Uh, uh, and they say that, yeah, there are obviously limit, limitations to all of these types of funding models, but um, people uh, may in future essentially be looking uh, to to use comp- their personal preferences. Thanks for writing in, Rebecca. Definitely um, some interesting ideas to consider there in terms of alternative business models. You know, another one that used to be popular ages ago, and I haven't heard it mentioned much more, is like micropayments. What happened to micropayments? I swear they were a big idea about 10 years ago, and I guess it didn't work out. Which is kind of weird because you think that a lot of the things we talked about would be solved by micropayments, right? Like articles, subscriptions, newsletters, things like that would be much better if you could just kind of pay for something in a fraction, frictionless, frictionlessly. It would, would solve a lot of problems that the media is having with the internet and things like that. I imagine the infrastructure would probably be quite hard to develop. Maybe someone listening knows a little bit more about what's going on in that space at the moment. If you've got any feedback on any of the stories in our episode this week or any of the random facts and questions that we've brought up, then please do write in podcast at wired.co.uk and we'll be here again next week. 
<laughs> See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.